If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. Which prince forged his reputation in the medieval till yard? How did industrialisation turbocharge the rise of football? And why did rugby union become a totem of Welsh national identity? These are just some of the questions considered by David Horsfall in his latest book, More Than a Game, A History of How Sport Made Britain. Here in conversation with Spencer Mizzen, David explores our nation's long love affair with sport, from the brutality of medieval jousts to the megabooks of the Premier League. Hi David, thank you for joining us today. Your new book charts Britain's long love affair with sport via the evolution of games that remain hugely popular today, such as horse racing, tennis, golf, boxing, cricket, football and rugby union. However, for your first chapter, you go all the way back to the medieval tournament, which were enormous set-piece events that saw knights and men-at-arms engaged in jousting and something called a melee which resembled a huge pitched battle. 
But you're right that there are actually a number of similarities between the medieval tournament and modern sports. So I wonder if you could start by explaining what they are. How is it possible to draw a line between the medieval tournament and the sports that are played today? Sure, yes. Hi, Spencer. Nice to be here. Well, I was sort of inspired to think in this direction by the fact that tournaments are called that even today. And the European Championships that were held in France some years ago, which England crashed out of and Wales did a bit better at, were actually held. The final was held only a few miles away from one of the sites of the greatest medieval tournaments ever at a place called Lagny. And I was thinking about whether there were any similarities, any connections. And the first thing that sprang out to me was that there's a connection between the international rivalries being put into a sporting context. So in the Middle Ages, famous knights would rove around looking for these great tournaments and would represent their country or their duchy if it, you know something smaller than a country was involved. And the same kind of sporting superstars did emerge from these events. And then there are other little connections that occurred to me. The whole rise of heraldry and the way of recognising your opponent, all the shields that you would see have those crests and the emblems of the same sort that we now see on football jerseys or rugby jerseys that actually continues. So there's this kind of symbolic continuation there. But I think more precisely, it's to do with that origins of international sport that I was quite interested in, as well as the idea that you could have these rivalries that went almost as far as proper hostility and war, but not quite. And that gets you to the great phrase of George Orwell, who wasn't very keen on sport and called it war minus the shooting. Now, you make an interesting point, don't you? Because, like you say, George Orwell described sport as war minus the shooting. But you actually point out that military men back in the Middle Ages actually learned lessons from tournaments and applied them to the battlefield. Is that, was that right? How, how did that work? Yeah, that is right. Well, if you think that you're training for battle the closest thing you would get to the real thing would be in one of these melees. I think it's worth emphasising that, as you've said, the medi- the original medieval tournament wasn't quite what we might have in mind of the kind of one-on-one jousting. That came later in the tilt yard. What I'm originally writing about in that chapter is actually a tournament which represented something like a battle, The only difference really was that the weapons were called rebated weapons. They were not sharpened swords. They had things placed on the end of them. But people did die in these things because if you imagine being clonked over the head with something that's not sharp, it can still cause a lot of damage. And so things like battle tactics, taking of prisoners, which was basically the aim of the tournament, was to take the prisoner of the most significant person on the other side and ransom them 
that's another connection to modern sports is quite a lot of it all comes down to money. So all those things were quite a good practice for war. And one way we can tell that that must have been the case is that some rulers were very nervous about tournaments. And in England in particular, when it was not very secure, that was quite often something that the kings used to bear down on and to forbid. Because as I say in my book, the idea of getting together a whole load of heavily armed show-offs and getting them all excited and then reminding them that they weren't very happy with their ruler could end up in a very bad situation for that ruler. But in the end, actually, it's a sort of indication of the strength of a king, whether he was able to ban tournaments or not. So, for example, King Stephen of Stephen and Matilda fame was not able, he was quite a keen tournamenter himself, I think, but he wasn't able to ban them because people did quite a lot of what they liked during his reign. When Henry II came in after his death, he did swiftly ban them, but his own son, who was known as Henry the Young King after he was crowned, became very famous for tournamenting and spent quite a career of prancing around, mostly around France, taking up challenges I suppose it was quite a good way of keeping a potentially rebellious son, of which Henry II ended up having rather a lot, out of trouble. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. So you describe Henry the Young King as perhaps the first 
English royal who can be accurately described as sports mad. So yeah, can you just elaborate on that a little bit? What made him sports mad? Well, the sport in question being the tournament. So I think it's always very difficult to be certain about the kind of psychology of medieval figures. What probably was going on with him was he was a young man trained for battle as people in his class would be, but obviously unable to put that into real practice because one of the main things that Henry II had brought was peace to England, at least. And so his obsession with sport, the sport of tournamenting, was a good outlet for that. And in addition, he became great friends with and had a a great favourite in William the Marshal, who was a very famous knight of the time, ended up living for a very long time and started out in Henry the Young King's retinue as one of his most valued knights. And basically, if you had him on your side, it was, you know, like having Lionel Messi on your side sort of idea. Now, as I've already said, this book is a chronicle of Britain's love affair with sport down the centuries. But is that love affair more intense in Britain than other nations? Is sport more tightly woven into the fabric of people's daily lives in this country than it is in, say, Germany or Italy? And if the answer to that is yes, why? Well, I think the answer is yes. I haven't done a complete survey. And of course, any historian of sport or anyone who's interested in the world around them will know that you go to any country in the world and almost always they've got some sporting obsession that looms very large. Very often it's football, but if you go to to India, for example, as recently, you know, the World Cup completely overtook India in cricket. But what I would say is that in broader terms, the number of sports that are completely woven into our lives really does seem to make us exceptional in Britain. And obviously, we've also exported quite a lot of those sports, you know, although Indian writers say that cricket is an Indian game that happened to be invented by the English. It was invented by the English, and that's not an exception. And to answer the question why, there are so many answers to that question, but I think one of the principal reasons is our early industrial experience. So that accounts for quite a lot of the early arrival of the Industrial Revolution in Britain accounts for quite a lot of the modern sports, and particularly thinking of football and rugby, because cricket and horse racing, which I also discuss, you can date their popularity rather earlier. Then you've also got the influence of the public schools, which I go into slightly less in my book than other historians of sport do, partly because I think it's written about so much, partly because I'm slightly doubtful of its absolute centrality to the development of sport. And to people who think I'm wrong about that, my best argument against it is that the person who didn't think that the Battle of Waterloo was won on the playing fields of Eton was the Duke of Wellington, who never played any organised sport at Eton and didn't ever say that. So I think there's quite a casual link made between those two things, which of course did exist. But I think that it's much wider than a kind of narrow 
upper class thing that's somehow kind of disseminated to the public. I think it it comes from the other end as well. So what was the link between early industrialisation and the codification of these sports? I think one way in which it was important was the changing way that a working day and a working week were organised. So there were more set times. If your population is largely agricultural, you can't really time your leisure time very accurately. Obviously, you're at the mercy of the seasons and the livestock and so on. So that's one factor in it. Another factor is urbanisation, getting lots of people gathering together in certain places has that consequence of they want to do something together. They're kind of brought up against each other. And also, I think those kind of new loyalties start to emerge, your loyalty to your new place that you live or to your factory. And quite a lot of teams start out as as kind of factory teams. And I've noticed in, I don't think I've read it anywhere before, but I noticed when looking at rugby, which I, in my chapter about rugby, I particularly focus on rugby and for want of a better word, the Celtic nations. And when looking at Welsh rugby, I noticed that you can really map the best known and kind of longest lasting rugby clubs and teams onto a map of the coalfields of South and West Wales. And it really kind of snakes along sort of past Swansea there. And that must be a pretty strong link. And it's very well known that a lot of the great original Welsh rugby players came from mining communities. So that connection exists there from quite early on. Can we just talk about that in a little bit more detail, actually? Because like you say, in your chapter on rugby union, you describe how this kind of English public school sport was kind of adopted as a totem of nationalism and Welsh identity, and also for Scotland and Ireland. Why is that? Why rugby union? Well, it's a hard question to answer and it's very hard to know exactly why in Wales it was particularly strong because in Scotland and to an extent in Ireland it did retain that kind of more upper class link and impression. Whereas in Wales, partly because very early on they started turning a blind eye to the idea of broken time payments, as they were known, which was basically a kind of way of making sure that amateurs didn't lose out by losing working time in order to play. So there's sort of famous money in the boots kind of idea after you'd played and people heard no more about it kind of idea. Whereas in England, by contrast, people who played rugby and were losing money out of their passion found that there was no kind of similar turning a blind eye And that's where the origins of rugby league come from, a professional way of playing. And Welsh rugby players did go to rugby league, but not in such great numbers. They carried on in that way. And of course, as we know, rugby union continued as an amateur sport, really, till comparatively recently, really. So the Welsh had stolen a march, really, on the other nations in that way. And because they became very good at it, at a time when Welsh national identity 
was beginning to be reformulated as something to do with a kind of industrial, modernising, but very Christian country. Rugby therefore became associated with that. And I, I go into, in my chapter on rugby, the strange chronological kind of coincidence between what was called the Welsh Revival, which was a Methodist Christian revival, which spread throughout Wales, it was incredibly popular. And there were times when newspaper reporters and so on would say that actually it seemed to be becoming more popular than rugby. But what happened in fact was it was sort of subsumed into rugby, became part of Welsh rugby tradition, the kind of hymn singing and loud support for the team that was pretty much unique to Wales at the beginning, really comes out of that world. Sure. Now, your introduction, the introduction to the book is, I thought it was quite bittersweet because you begin by recounting Chloe Kelly's winning goal for England in the finals of the Euros in 2022. But then you kind of go on to describe how around a century earlier, the FA effectively banned women's football in this country. I mean, can you tell us a bit about that banning? What, what was their thinking behind it? Well, I think the idea behind it was that women's football had become too popular for its own good or for, that might be the wrong way of putting it, for the opinions of the people who ran the game in Britain who were, unsurprisingly, men. It became very popular, beginning really during the First World War and then afterwards. And it was really viewed as potentially taking away from interest and money for the men's game, rather than thinking of making it work together with the men's game the authorities in the FA decided that this threat could only be met by banning women's football, which it's extraordinary to think that that was what they did. I think even more extraordinary is to realise how long it lasted for. You know, it lasted into the 1970s, which is just astonishing, really, when you think about it. But it really did make football this very over-hyper-masculine game for that period, despite the fact that some women's teams did continue to play away from FA-sanctioned grounds and so on. But it told women that football wasn't for them. And obviously, it was very, very hard to play. I think it also became less popular to watch for women as well. And that too has changed, not just in the women's game, you know, in both forms of the game, the attendance of women has, has gone up and up. Sure. I mean, how important was telling the story of women's sports to the writing of this book? Well, I did want it to be a really central part because sport is so often sort of seen as a boy's thing. And obviously in recent years, especially with the success of particularly of the women's, England women's football, it has you know, opened a lot of well, men's eyes to the importance of women's sport. I was wary of sort of, paying lip service in every chapter and sort of saying this was how the sport emerged and this was women's role in it and then sort of back to the blokes. So in order to try to avoid that, I really wanted to focus on women in, in one chapter at least, which I did in the chapter I wrote about tennis, 
which I really do kind of see as having a sort of transformative effect on the way women were viewed in sporting terms and in wider terms in Britain, particularly around Wimbledon, which is basically the only way in which tennis ever becomes a truly kind of popular game in Britain once a year, with some exceptions. And the story there of women's place in tennis slightly does replicate this kind of story of repression, being ignored, being ill-treated, then being accepted on certain terms. And obviously the women's tennis has, has become more and more successful, more and more important as, as part of the kind of particular Wimbledon fortnight. But it's still, to me, noticeable that it is not quite seen in the same terms. Uh, one example I give is that there are there's no statue, for example, of a female tennis player at Wimbledon. There's one of Fred Perry. Despite the fact there were numerous female champions at Wimbledon throughout the years, finally, the last one being Virginia Wade. I also think it's kind of remarkable that nobody ever mentions or seemed to, maybe I'm wrong about this, but that the commentator Sue Barker, who was a former tennis player herself, won a Grand Slam and she won the French Open. So modest about it that she had apparently never noticed that her own engraved name on the side of the trophy had ascribed her nationality as Australian, which was a bit surprising. Only when I think Ashley Barty, the first Australian winner of the French Open, pointed this out and said, oh, am I not the first Australian winner? Who's this S. Barker? Did people say, oh, no, she that should say GB? That's extraordinary. Yeah, it is amazing. Now, my dad used to be a bookmaker, so there was always quite a lot of racing on the television when I was when I was younger. But I was quite intrigued by your assertion that there's quite a good case to be made for horse racing being Britain's national sport all the way up to the the Second World War. And I think as you note in your chapter on racing, it was usually just described as racing. It didn't even have to be described as horse racing. It was a bit like Elvis or Madonna only only needed one name. It was so deeply embedded in the fabric of British culture. I mean, why is that? Why did racing, horse racing, acquire such a dominant status in British sporting life for such a long time? Well, I think it is partly a kind of top-down thing because it was this royal sport. Partly, I think, also it's because people like your dad worked out quite early that it was a good way of making money, but also the idea of... I'm quite cautious in my book about the idea that gambling has always been this kind of great scourge of British society. Gambling is intrinsically associated with, with horse racing, which is obviously one of the reasons it's so popular. But I'm not convinced that it, it's always been a, a terrible thing and that actually the vast majority of people who gambled, and it was very, very popular to gamble, gamble within their means. You know, they would set aside a small amount of their, say, weekly paycheck, or they would even set aside something for an annual visit to one of the big races. So when I say that I think it could be called the national sport of the country, I'm really thinking of those 
great meetings. Obviously, the Derby at Epsom is is the biggest, or certainly was back in the in the nineteenth century in particular. But all round the country, in Chester, in Newcastle, in Manchester, Newmarket was a sort of special case because it wasn't a place where people lived and racing happened. It was a place where racing happened and therefore people lived. So it was a kind of special racing town. But all these places, there were you know dozens and dozens of race courses, and a lot of them had a kind of annual festival, which would become immensely popular. Most of those we don't have anymore, but some we do, and, and some are incredibly popular still, such as the Cheltenham Festival. Now, I'd like to also to move on to boxing, because in your chapter on that sport, you point out that, I think it was especially in the early 20th century, that boxing became very popular among the Jewish community, and it was kind of a vehicle for assimilating into British society. I mean, I wonder if you could tell us a little a bit about that, because that was something I knew absolutely nothing about, and it was quite an interesting thing to find out more about. Well, the association of boxing with the Jewish community goes way back to uh, the early years of boxing before the Queensbury Rules and before boxing gloves. There was a, a famous Jewish fighter called Daniel Mendoza in the 18th century who became, to all intents and purposes, the champion of Britain. And he made a great point of his Jewishness. He was Sephardic Jewish. And the way that he displayed himself, the way he talked about being Jewish was all quite unusual at the time. So there's a a Jewish origin story in boxing in Britain. And then if you go forward, I was particularly looking at the East End of London, but it's not restricted to that. East End of London had, after particularly in the late 19th century, early 20th century, had a large Jewish population. And they took up boxing very eagerly. There are a lot of boxing clubs and big boxing halls called things like Wonderland and Premierland, where thousands of people would crowd in. They produced world champions like Jack Kidberg and Ted Kid Lewis. They also produced famous trainers and promoters. And this goes right up to somebody like Mickey Duff, who was Frank Bruno's promoter and various other fighters, but made an absolute fortune out of out of the boxing game and had started out as a boxer himself. He was named Monik Proger and he came from a Hasidic, Polish Hasidic family and his parents had emigrated to, to Britain. And quite a few of these fighters had to conceal from their rather traditional parents that they were indulging in this, what you might say is a kind of assimilated world. But other people within the Jewish community really saw it as a way of establishing themselves and encouraged, for example, the Jewish Boys Brigade, which became totally dominant in boxing to the extent that they actually took at least one year out of the national competition because they always won it and they wanted to give other people a chance. That was David Horsball historian and sport editor of the Times Literary Supplement. David's book, More Than a Game, is out now, published by John Murray. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden.
a collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.